The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world and is now a leading supplier across the Americas. With the world's most powerful 250-kilowatt, 1,500-volt string inverter, SunGrow is providing disruptive technology for utility-scale projects. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, the Trump alternative to Obama's clean power plan. Rather than repeal the rule, the EPA is just making it as weak as possible. Then, the red-blue climate divide. States are putting in place ambitious new climate plans, but they're almost all in states dominated by Democrats. And the new EPA power plant rule only makes that gap bigger. What are the long-term economic consequences for the red states failing to change? Finally, we got about 15 minutes of climate talk in the first two Democratic presidential debates. Does this yet again prove why we need a climate-only debate? We will debate. My fellow moderators are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine Hamilton is over there in Washington, D.C. She is the uh, chair of 38 North Solutions. Good morning. I saw you live tweeting those debates. I was. I was so excited when they started talking about climate. I really woke up and got my fingers ready. <laughs> Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. Did you watch both debates? Oh, hell no. <laughs> it is like, those are very long debates. And they literally have too many people on stage. I poke my head in. I follow Twitter. And then when people start mentioning energy and climate, I jump in and catch the NBC feed. So... I don't watch the whole thing. I, I listen to podcasts afterward to get the, the roundup, just as our listeners are listening to us. Yeah, that's why you have me on here. Yeah. <laughs> well, Catherine, you've done the homework for us, so we'll rely on you. But uh, I, I did catch last night's climate piece and the night before. So although I didn't see the full debate, I have context on where things stand on energy and climate, and they are, they're not great. But first, let's talk about where things stand with the new EPA rule, which is also not great. It is the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, which was just rolled out uh, by the Trump administration, by EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. It is the alternative to the Obama-era clean power plan. So let's remember back to 2013, the Obama administration put an emphasis on executive authority, and it finalized this rule in 2015 called the Clean Power Plan. The goal was to cut power plant pollution by a third by 2030 from 2005 levels. Well, we've already come close to hitting that goal 10 years early. I think we've slashed uh, carbon pollution 28% over 2005 levels. So, you know, we're well beyond what the Clean Power Plan set. And Trump's EPA would love to keep it that way. Rather than scrap the clean power plan entirely, Andrew Wheeler is issuing a toothless version that allows states to do almost nothing if they choose. So, Catherine, what is Wheeler's plan and how is it different from the Obama one? Yeah. So just to review quickly, the Obama clean power plan was seemed ambitious at the time. Maybe it wasn't ambitious enough, but what it did was it looked at greenhouse gas and took the Clean Air Act, Section 111D, to mean we had to look at the whole system. It wasn't just plant by plant because emissions crossed boundaries. So we had to actually look at the entire system. So what they said was, all right, let's take a system approach 
States, you all have a lot of flexibility on how you want to implement. You have to have targets. You have to have goals to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but you can do it in a whole bunch of different ways. And there were different building blocks. One was, you know, plant improvement. One was uh, focused on natural gas. One was focused on renewables. You could do efficiency. You could do demand response. There were lots of ways you could do it. So it was very, very flexible. And it got everybody kind of pointed in the same direction. And this ruling actually never went into effect. The rulemaking was immediately taken to the DC Circuit Court and argued to an en banc panel, which means all the judges, not just three. And evidently, the arguments went really, really well. The justices were asking good questions. It seemed like they were going in the right direction. And then we had an election, and the Trump administration said, we're not going to defend this rule. We're going to pull it back. We need more time. We need to redo this. So It had never even actually gone into effect. But what this ACE would do is very, very narrow. It says, we're only doing the fence line. We're only doing coal plants. There is only really one thing you can do, and that is to improve the heat rate of coal plants. And so it doesn't doesn't say you have to do anything. It will only give a few percentage points of CO2 reduction. And in fact, if you improve the heat rate, you're going to probably end up dispatching the plants more and increasing CO2 in the process. So it really does the opposite while not allowing for as much flexibility as the original clean power plan did. So there are two schools of thought on this. One on the far right is that we should scrap the EPA power plant regulations altogether. And the other school of thought The slightly more uh, legally moderate approach espoused by Bill Wierum, uh, Andrew Wheeler and Scott Pruitt, which is let's just find a way to operate within the bounds of the law, but make this as weak as possible. And that's what they did here. So what they're trying to do and how they want to hold this up legally falls into kind of two buckets. And I reached out to someone who was original author of the Clean Power Plan and got a lot of this from her. I didn't, this is not something that I just knew on my own necessarily. But the two arguments that the EPA is making right now are under Chevron, the Chevron decision. And the first argument is that under 111D of the Clean Air Act, that there's only one possible interpretation, and that is within the fence line, and that's plant by plant. And if that argument were to go forward, and our courts were to rule that that was the way to look at 111D, then we would not be able to go backwards. We would only be able to do what EPA has done here. The second argument they make is called Chevron 2. And what they're saying there is even if you can interpret 111D in more than one way, because it's ambiguous, the agency gets to decide on the interpretation. So in that case, whoever is running EPA would be able to change according to what they how they interpreted it. So if the courts get through this one interpretation, we'd probably actually have to go back and amend the Clean Air Act and clarify it in order to make sure that we could do something and regulate more than just inside the fence line of coal plants. So Jigger, for those of us who don't operate power plants, what does it mean to improve the heat rate of a thermal power plant like a coal plant? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so basically, it goes back to another policy which the Trump administration is trying to edit, which are not quite finalized yet, which is new source review. So what happened back in the 90s is that there was a big lawsuit, particularly involving Salt River Project, where they tried to uh, improve a coal plant. Actually, sorry, Tucson Electric Power. And uh, they tried to improve a coal plant, and they basically said you can't do minor 
efficiency adjustments to the coal plant. If you're going to um, if you're going to improve it, you have to bring it all the way up to today's standards. You can't get grandfathered into old standards. And and so for about 20 years, we have not done any efficiency measures at coal plants. And so there's a lot of technologies that allow you to increase the thermal sort of heat rate of coal plants. And uh, we just haven't done it because utilities are really afraid of um, triggering new source review, right? So um, so we're in this bind. And it the, the arguments here to me are quite confusing because... EPA, at the same time that they're issuing these new rules, admits freely that we will probably reach the old 35% reduction of carbon emissions under 2005 levels, given the switch to natural gas and the advent of renewable energy and state policy. So while they're passing this rule, they're also admitting that we're probably going to hit the old rule. And so to me, I think this is really about arguing around whether you think that that by making these efficiency improvements at coal plants, you're actually going to extend their life, which is what a lot of environmentalists are saying, which I frankly just don't believe. I mean, even by increasing efficiency at these coal plants, you're still not going to make these coal, plant, coal plants cost effective. Also, Jigger, that requires actually investing in the coal plant. And most people have not right. been willing to invest in the coal plant. Right. So I just, I like, I hear why the environmentalists care so deeply about making sure this gets done right. And that the, the, you know, architects of this new rule are really trying to box people in around not being able to use 111D in the future for out of the fence power plants. But it just feels to me like this is a lot of noise around something that we're already past that like so many people in the investment areas have already said that coal is not investable to the point where new coal transactions that are being done now require a two-year payback. That's as long as investors believe coal plants will last when they make an investment. Well, I don't think the enviros are saying that this is going to save coal. From the analysis that I've read from the major environmental groups, they're all saying, hey, we're surpassing the clean power plan goals. This is not going to likely save coal, but we should be doing more. And we're going to fight the legal battle because we believe the law says we should be doing more. So they're going to throw as many legal resources at this as possible. So I don't know that I'm seeing the argument necessarily that this is going to somehow magically save coal. I think everyone recognizes that this doesn't really do much of anything, but that's the point. We should be doing a lot more. So why not throw a lot of dollars into fighting this as as much as possible? So this goes back to the argument that we had before on the Energy Gang, which is I, I, I sort of see things through the lens of the EPA, the current EPA. I, I don't think we should be fighting these battles through the EPA. I just, I really think that Carol Browner made a mistake when she weaponized EPA back in the nineties. Like I really think that. If you're going to shut down these coal plants, you shut them down the right way at the state level with the public service commissions, et cetera, or you use arguments around human health, which, you know, like the MACT rule and other things around mercury standards. But I just think that going through the EPA process and saying that we are going to use that process as a backhanded way to shut down coal plants by regulating 
carbon dioxide is actually, by the way, something that even the Obama administration wasn't willing to do. I think we all agreed that the Clean Power Plan was too weak to affect anything. Yeah, but so, Jigger, the thing is, there was an endangerment finding that greenhouse gas emissions are harmful to human health. And it is it is incumbent on the EPA to regulate that because they're the only ones whose sole requirement is to protect the environment and health of our citizens. And states aren't going to necessarily do it. So I think it is it is incumbent on the EPA to do do it. it. Well, some of them might do it and some of them won't. But you have to have a backstop and the EPA has to be that. And that's what I mean, that the why wouldn't states do it is a good question for our second topic. Um, and this rule allows states that wouldn't otherwise do it to continue more of the same. I guess all I'm saying is I I get frustrated by the fact that I think EPA doesn't do its core job well, which is local pollution, right? There's a lot of industrial plants that are just dumping crap into local rivers, streams, soil. And then when whistleblowers call them out, EPA says, well, I don't have enough money to do any enforcement actions. I'd like to get a lot of those frontline communities and other folks who are affected by just pollution fixed. I'd like to get a lot of this stuff fixed. And I just think that these arguments, while theoretically interesting, we I think what we've proven is that we can actually do a lot more at the state level than I think we're going to be able to get out of the federal level. Well, uh, philosophically, I very much agree with that, Jigger. I think the EPA should be focusing on local community impacts. And in a perfect world, it wouldn't be distracted with the clean power plan or some other equivalent rule. Um, But we don't have any other tools to do anything about climate change at the federal level. And that's what the Obama administration recognized. That's why they put so much stock into this approach. And so being a realist, I'm willing to accept using whatever tool that we have on the federal level to do something. Uh, Now, the question is, is that taking resources away from other important responsibilities that the EPA has? It it may. uh, And I think there's a very sound philosophical argument for why EPA shouldn't be doing this. But I also agree that we have no other tool. And, you know, the EPA is the only thing we've got right now. Yeah, and the EPA can do more than one thing at a time. It's not just has to be focused on one thing. And I also remember the Clean Power Plan let states figure out on their own what are the best resources that you want to use? What would you how what approach do you want to take? Do you want to focus on efficiency? Do you want to focus on demand response or renewables? Like there was a lot of flexibility built into it to help and also they said if you can't do it, we'll help you do it. We have the resources to help you put together your own plan. And that's what we need. Because states who want to have their own plan and want to be aggressive and move forward much faster, let them do it. That's great. This was just giving a backstop because we all know that the people who have the least of us are the ones that suffer the most when we don't protect the air and water. So let's wrap up with talking about the consequence to energy markets, if at all. Does it have any negative impact on clean generation and I think we answered this question, does it help boost coal in any way? Almost no one believes it'll really help coal all that much. But uh, let's just answer both of those questions very quickly. So, so Catherine, what does this do to the resource mix, if, if anything at all? I mean, you may end up having some coal plants operating dispatching more often. But again, they're the most expensive source of energy, and that would just cause prices to go up. So I, I think in the end, they're still not going to be viable. Yeah, I think it'll depress wholesale markets even further, right? Because if you let these coal plants operate even a year or two longer, 
then it'll be oversupplying wholesale markets, which means that prices will go down even more, which means that ratepayers will have to subsidize these coal plants even more just to keep them open. Yeah, I think they'll have to operate out of market because they're too expensive. Let's take a quick pause here to talk about our sponsor, SunGrow. With more than 82 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe, SunGrow is now growing rapidly in the U.S., with more than 1.5 gigawatts of projects booked in 2019 alone. One of those projects is the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority's 27-megawatt Cayenta 2 solar farm. This project will double the amount of solar power that the Navajo Nation has in Cayenta. In fact, the 55 megawatts of solar will replace a coal plant that's closing later this year. Cayenta 2 will bring critical power to the Navajo Nation, where 15,000 people live without regular access to power. The project will also allow additional solar to be sold back to the grid to earn money for the Navajo Nation. But SunGrow isn't just focused on solar. Its energy storage inverters are integrated into 200 megawatt hours worth of storage projects deployed across the U.S. Check out more about what SunGrow is up to at Solar Power International in Salt Lake this September at booth 2211. That's an easy one to remember. And you can find out more at sungrowpower.com. Our next topic complements our first topic very nicely. The New York Times published a fantastic piece uh, a week or so back, written by one of our favorite writers, Brad Plumer, about the growing gap between red and blue states on climate. A growing number of states are setting 100% clean energy goals and net zero carbon targets, and they're trying to price carbon as well, although that's a lot more difficult. In the Trump era, people focus on this issue are putting a strong emphasis on cities and states, but there's a certain something about those localities that are acting They are nearly all run by Democrats. This isn't a surprising revelation given the state of climate politics. But as Plumer points out in the early days of policy, the gap wasn't nearly as wide. And that's because many Republicans strongly supported local rules to promote renewable energy. But but now that policymakers are going beyond the grid and realizing they need to craft even deeper decarbonization goals and get deeper into other sectors, there's a very clear split. So what does this mean for our ability to enforce the plans that are being put in place? And what are the long-term economic consequences for states that are not acting? Uh, Jigger, explain why the gap between red and blue states wasn't always as big as it is today. Well, I think that the the bar for, um, for doing something interesting has gone up, right? So it used to be that you could pass a 15% renewable portfolio standard with an interim goal of 1% or 2% of the grid coming from renewable energy. And I think Republicans were completely for that. Today, the bar is, you know, at 100% or 50%. So I think there's a lot of Republicans that are saying, uh, we don't really like going that far, right? Because the Republicans in general, I think are pro- technology, economic development, et cetera, at the local level, but they're not pro-legislating the demise of existing assets, which is what you would really have to vote for if you're going to vote for a 100% clean energy bill. Yeah, so I actually, I'm going to pull a jigger here and say I kind of reject the premise of a growing divide. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is a first, I I think. I know, so I read the article and I actually sent it to you guys and said, hey, we should talk about this. But I don't agree with it. Like, I honestly think so much of journalism is about let's show how divided our country is. And I 
don't think it's as divided as everybody says it is. So you look at some of the action in red states right now on renewables, like Georgia unanimously in the legislature and the governor signed on to increase the length of PPAs for renewables. And this was a lot about Walmart saying we're going to move to 100% renewables by 2025. Walmart is everywhere. They're in blue states and red states. And Georgia is not a blue state. Arkansas just allowed third-party contracts for solar in the Solar Access Act. South Carolina ended their cap on net, net metering. Maine is a really mixed bag. It is not a blue, necessarily a blue state. Their two senators are independent and Republican, and they just signed on to an 80% RPS by 2030, 100% by 2050. I mean, these are states that are not necessarily monolithic in being blue at all. So I and 85% of wind projects are in red states. Like you look at what's out there right now, Texas, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, they have the most wind. Solar, Arizona, Texas, Utah, Georgia, Florida, the Carolinas, like red states have a lot of renewables. So I don't see that as being the divide. Well, I see your rejection and I reject your rejection. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I don't think that that's climate policy. The stuff that Brad Plumer is characterizing as the next generation of climate policy are things like New York City's Green New Deal, right, that de Blasio put in place in April. And that's like trying to ban the big glass skyscrapers and create wildly ambitious new building standards and efficiency standards that is, quite frankly, extremely difficult to implement, causes a lot of chaos in the building community. Uh, but has to be done in some way. And that's the next phase of climate policy that is going to be extraordinarily hard to put together. And so the easy stuff is, hey, let's let's develop more renewable energy. Hey, this stuff is, is cheap enough now. We can get utilities to build more of it. Um, generally, I think that it's true that red states are still to continuing to progress in that area. But to me, that's not the ambitious climate policy that I think about when I read this article. I'm thinking about massive new standards within cities or states that are going to wildly change the way that we develop infrastructure. And that stuff is so difficult. And there is certainly nothing but progressive states thinking about that stuff right now. I think you have to be very um, careful about how far you take this. I think when you think about some of the worst policies in the climate front in the country are nimbyism in cities um, and the fact that cities basically are owned by car companies and car subsidies, right? I mean, you know, when you look at most cities, 40 to 50% of all of the land mass of the city has been donated to cars in the form of parking lots, roads, and all sorts of other subsidies for cars. If you really wanted to talk climate policy, we'd be densifying, like Minnesota passed a law that allowed you to take single-family homes and turn them into duplexes and triplexes. And you would also be talking about digging up roads and actually making them more productive and forcing people in cities to basically use Uber Pool and Lyft or public transit or whatever it takes, but not owning cars anymore. Well, right. And, and, and New York City is experimenting with the first phase of that by implementing congestion pricing. 
But you can't use New York City. Using, you can't use well, New York City. Why not? Because, but, but because New York City was the built. Divide, why not? Because New York City was built for 50,000 people to live on every block. Like, you have to compare it to, let's say, San Francisco, which is doing almost nothing, or Los Angeles, or other cities that are like wealthy cities in blue states that are doing practically nothing in these areas, right? I just think that, like, when you think about if you're going to go all the way to climate policy, then you then I have a very high bar, right? If we're talking about technology deployment legislation, then I hear you. But even there, I would disagree with you. I think there are a lot of states throughout the country, for instance, that are doing great work on food waste or on, you know, figuring out how farmers can put more carbon back into the soil. And those climate policies, I would venture to say, are probably going to sequester more carbon than New York City's new law. So I think there are a lot of ways to skin the cat and so even if you're not setting carbon goals, you can still get to those without having to say that or making big statements about it. But I think what is going to end up happening, the divide, my sense, is socioeconomic. And we need to be careful, whether it's in a city or in a rural community, that those communities that are living in poverty that have that don't have access to broadband, so they can't get information on energy, or who don't have access to affordable and efficient housing, that those are the communities we have to watch out for, and that that's where the divide is going to grow, not in red states versus blue states. Well, the last story that I want to talk about that um, highlights this partisan gap would be over in Oregon, a blue state where the state legislature is trying to price carbon. Republicans uh, walked out of the state, basically ran, fled, and hid, and made it so that that the state legislature couldn't actually vote on this uh, carbon pricing legislation. So uh, I think this is an important story to highlight, um, A, because it's a blue state that is failing to take action, but be because you have Republicans who are so afraid of doing anything meaningful on climate that they're literally running and, and hiding uh, in other states. So anyone want to comment on this story? I do think it's an important one to highlight in relation to this subject. Yeah, this was seen as like an example of what's going to happen in blue states with these militia guys. So it's like the 3% militia people came out and, you know, like took arms up around the Capitol. But remember, this is the land of the Bundys, Cliven and Ammon Bundy, who were very much about protecting their land rights and were willing to take up arms. And, you know, there's this, there's this faction of people like that in Oregon. But remember, before they all fled because of the carbon vote, they passed some EV goals that were pretty amazing with goals of nine out of 10 sales being EVs and half the vehicles registered in the state being EVs and, and a goal by 2035. I mean, that was pretty astounding. And they all voted for that. Yeah, look, I, I try not to get worked up about a lot of this stuff. I mean, you remember that all the Democrats fled the state in Wisconsin to prevent you know, Walker from, you know, passing anti-union bills. And so this is a tactic that unfortunately has been used in the past and will probably be used again. I I, th- I think it is, you know, just extraordinary to note, though, that the Oregon state legislature and the governor is looking to lead on climate in this bold way. And I think it's only a matter of time until they get something passed there. Okay, over to our last topic, how climate change is being addressed in the presidential debates 
Just a quick note, we're having this discussion on Friday after the two Democratic debates on Wednesday and Thursday. We're actually releasing it early on the week of July 4th, so you may hear us reference things that happened uh, just this week, which is actually the, the previous week when you're listening to this. So after two debates with 20 candidates, we got 15 minutes or so of discussion about climate and energy. I'll tell you, the reaction on Twitter was as divided as the issue itself. I saw some people praising uh, some of the questions, many people scoffing at them. Most, however, ultimately agreed that the limited nature of the conversation showed us why we need a full debate focused on the issue. So the two questions that I want to grapple with are, how is climate getting framed in this election cycle within the debates? And even if we're not going to get a climate debate, according to the DNC, what do we now think about a climate-only debate now that we've seen the questions that have been proposed um, in the actual debates themselves? Catherine, you were live-tweeting both of them. Characterize the conversation for us in this 15 minutes of climate and energy talk. Yeah, I thought, first of all, the questions were terrible. I, I didn't think they showed any kind of understanding of the real issues around climate change. So there, you know, Rachel Maddow asked, can you save Miami? I mean, no, you're not going to save Miami. But who's going to say that you can't save Miami? Um, another question was, you know, how much is this going to cost? How much are people going to pay to deal with climate? So they were just framed really badly. I would hope, and I really hope we have a climate debate, um, that we would be able to get reporters who understand the issue and can ask much more intelligent and, you know, better questions that can really get to some issues that are that are broader than the ones that were discussed because the none of the candidates were really able to do much with the questions and they just kind of threw out a few things here and there and so it was hard even though some of them seemed quite nuanced in their responses like it was hard to even get well what does that mean and I don't think the general public would at all understand what they're talking about there was one question that got a ton of heat um, on Twitter that I actually really liked. And it came from Chuck Todd on Thursday night. And he said, look, in 2009, 2010, President Obama wanted to pass climate legislation. He got sidetracked by health care. He had a choice. He basically had a moment where he could pass one piece of legislation. He put his energy into health care. Climate fell apart. Obviously, there were a lot of factors involved in how that fell apart. But ultimately, his political capital was spent on health care. And then he asked, you're going to have basically one shot to focus on one major policy proposal when you're president. What's it going to be? And he, and he couched that in the context of climate. And almost nobody mentioned climate. Uh, I'm actually forgetting. Bennett and Hi yeah. Senator Bennett and Governor Hickenlooper were the only yeah, two. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I was so shocked by that. Um, I mean, it shows you that these candidates are not really thinking about climate front and center. It's an issue that is wrapped up into every other issue that they're discussing. But I thought that was a very telling question. I'm not sure why people hated it so much. But to me, it's like the fundamental question. Like, what the hell are you going to do when you get into office and you have one shot to make this thing happen? Yeah, look, I, I think the only candidate that's actually going to govern through one lens, which is climate, is Inslee. He didn't say that when he was asked what's the greatest threat, you know, in the world today. But he said it was Donald Trump, but kind of Donald Trump is the greatest threat in the world today. He's destabilizing all sorts of parts of the world today. So I don't know that I criticize Inslee for the answer as much. But I, the, the bigger thing for me is it really highlights the need for a climate debate. I think when you think about how we 
provide economic job security to people, how we deal with the healthcare in this country, how we deal with all these other issues, they all have to be dealt with through a climate lens. And that's why we need a climate debate. I just don't understand how we can have these debates and then climate gets a few questions and most of them were poorly worded. I thought Rachel Maddow's questions were, you know, just as bad as Chuck Todd's questions. I, I just don't think that, it, and even even with those questions, half of the candidates weren't asked a climate question. So I don't even know what half the candidates think about climate. Yeah, I totally agree. And also, it was out of context. So the argument by the DNC is this is too narrow, it's too small of an issue, it's just a one issue. But the thing is, you could actually cover a lot in a climate debate. You could cover the essentials like the climate, the crisis itself, how do you solve it? How do you mitigate and adapt? But it has to do with workforce transition, manufacturing, national security, trade, ecosystem, rural communities. There's just so many things you could cover in a climate debate that gets to everything else that we do, and with but with just a slightly different lens. And I think that would tease out some of the really nuanced differences. I was actually surprised. So riffing off of that theme about how climate is wrapped up into so many different issues, I was surprised that more candidates, particularly someone like Bernie Sanders, um, didn't come out and say, my first priority would be like the clean energy transition because we can get better jobs. We can, uh, you know, spread the wealth to communities that need it, make it broad enough to encompass all the issues that are important to his campaign while also tackling this mega issue that deals with every other problem that the candidates are talking about. And I was quite shocked to see how isolated climate change was from these other issues, even among candidates who say it's their top priority. Yeah. Well, Bernie, to me, frankly, is the most disappointing on a lot of these issues because, you know, he still hasn't come out with a climate plan. And I'm not sure he will. So it's not clear to me how serious he really is about climate. And he, it's funny because he has actually been very forward thinking on climate and clean energy for a long time. I've worked with his office many, many occasions. The issue is that's not his main organizing principle. <laughs> his whole organizing thing is anti-Wall Street. And I think that's, you know, that's that's just the way it is. And I, you know, even though he, you know, he's always been really good on these issues, it certainly didn't come across last night. So there's another question from Maddow, I think, from Rachel Maddow, that I thought was quite good. And again, it got crapped on on social media, but I really liked it. And I thought that John Hickenlooper, the former governor of Colorado, answered the question quite well. The question was, you're, you under your governorship, the oil and gas industry expanded dramatically. Um, what are you going to do to work with those companies to fight climate change? Do you think we should work against them or work with them to solve the challenge. And he said, well, look, we worked with the industry in Colorado to create a groundbreaking methane rule. Uh, these are industries, you know, when we think about industry in general, there's a lot of stuff that we're not talking about that's hard to decarbonize. And we can't do that without partnerships with industry to think through those tough challenges. I thought it was a pretty decent answer certainly resonated with me because he recognized like the deeper challenges that folks who run these industries need to grapple with. It didn't get a great response from many of the climate folks that I follow on Twitter, but I thought it was a fairly good question and a fairly good answer. So uh, a couple things about Hickenlooper. They do have the gold standard for methane regulation. They do. Colorado is great on that. So that was a good 
thing for him to talk about. That was the only thing he talked about. And partly because he's not a big fan of solar. I had got into a big fight with him in Davos one year because he was like crapping all over solar and saying it was bad for poor people. And he didn't believe in net metering. And we kind of got into it. Um, but, and, and you look at the new governor, uh, Jared Polis, who is like out there doing amazing, amazing, passing amazing pieces of like, oh, sorry. And you look at the new governor Polis out there, who's having to now make up for that on the clean energy front. So it was an okay answer, but I don't think Hicken, I don't see Hickenlooper as a big champion of clean energy. Well, there's something very ironic about this. And that is Hickenlooper was basically the only candidate or one of two candidates who said that they would make climate the centerpiece of his administration when he got into office. And yet he's the guy that many of the climate activists don't like because he's talking about working with industry. Uh, it's it's a, an interesting situation we found ourselves in that the most progressive candidates that in theory are, you know, developing the most ambitious plans are the ones who have been silent on making climate their top priority in the debate so far. Well, I don't know that they were silent. Look, I... I I think that we're in a very interesting place right now, and I do think that it 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 bears like sort of highlighting, which is that the the voluntary efforts we're trying to put together a standard with industry and all that stuff, like that that is not this moment. That was George W. Bush's moment, right? Remember, that's what George W. Bush did was do voluntary standards with industry, right? This moment is the science dictates what it is that we have to do to stave off the worst impacts of climate change. And we need a leader who actually is going to follow what the science leads us to accomplish, not the, you know, the coalition of the willing. Last question on this. Did either of these debates make you think differently about whether or not we should have a climate focused debate? Catherine? Yeah, it made me really want one more than I had even before. I was kind of thinking, well, you know, if they ask the right questions and they allow some time to talk about it, then maybe that's okay. But I really want to hear more. Like, for example, Pete Buttigieg was talking about rural America being part of the solution and having like a Pittsburgh Paris summit. And, you know, that to me, I was like, whoa, I want to hear more about that. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about what you're talking about. And I just feel like because climate touches every other aspect of our lives, including global leadership. So you want somebody in the White House who can, you know, climate, we've abdicated that leadership globally. And if someone is going to be the leader of this country, climate has to be top of mind because that is what the world needs right now. So yes, I want it more than ever. Yeah, I just don't think that we're going to be able to get into the nuances of how climate touches all policy. Um, from agriculture to energy to water and transportation, et cetera, without a climate-focused debate. It's just, I can't even imagine how you can continue to have, you know, seven or eight or nine questions out of 170 beyond climate. It just doesn't make any sense. Okay, well, let's talk about our free electrons here to wrap up the show. So, Jigger, let's go to yours. Well, so researchers at the uh, in Oregon have been studying a solar facility there, and they figured out that it has altered the microclimate uh, underneath the solar panels, which makes the grasses grow by 90%. And this particular solar system uh, manages its grasses by having cows and sheep um, on the on the property. And so I thought it was an interesting, you know, co-benefit of adding solar power. Huh. 
and and the Europeans have a lot of experience with this uh, that the the Americans are now getting a lot of experience with. Catherine, what's yours? Yeah, so a little bit about the EU. Um, the EU collectively is about ten percent of global emissions. They have goals to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 40% by 2030, but they did not vote. All the countries were not together and aligned on strengthening those goals. However, I was in a meeting with the Deputy Director General of Energy for the EU this week, and he talked about the market design rules that they passed, which was right up my alley. It was so interesting because they have figured out that distributed demand-side resources will save a billion dollar in euro savings every year that they're they're using consumers and peer-to-peer interaction and aggregation and digitalization all of those things that I've been working on forever to try to get like the supply and demand sides to work to, together better the EU is now implementing it in real time and and they've been doing this for a while but this has now codified it as as a structure and I think it's great I would love to see how it works out for them and if we can somehow replicate that here. Well, I've got a important personal one for folks. For so long, I've been thinking about the future of clean energy and climate change for myself and, you know, for, for my own generation. But now I have a new generation to think about. I've got a little baby daughter on the way who will be here maybe in a, in a couple of weeks, mid, mid-July. Oh, congratulations. I'm so happy for you. I get chills down my spine hearing about it. Yay. You both have known about it for a long time. You don't have to fake surprise. <laughs> I didn't know it was a girl, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a baby girl. You're lucky so. girls are super smart. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. We all know that. Very true. Shortly after we found out it was a girl, we were traveling in the airport and I looked around and saw a lot of the boys who were like karate chopping and kicking and jumping around. And then some of the girls who were, you know, like reading their books and hanging out and being so nice to their parents. And I was like, another reason why why I'm super happy to have a girl on the way. And it's, it's and it's absolutely true. Unfortunately, I've got I, I, I have a three and a half year old, and like when when you actually set up a table all nice, etc., you really are worried he's just gonna flip it over just to see what it does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have one daughter and three sons, and when she's not around, it's like Lord of the Flies in my house. So this is obviously an exciting personal announcement, but it also means that uh, we have to talk about logistics here. So when the baby comes, we're gonna take a couple weeks off from this show so you'll see us on a little bit of a hiatus we do have some other content coming up so we'll be continuing to produce the show and then of course we'll be back after a few week delay and we'll be podcasting right up until the baby comes so i think that's it for exciting news and and housekeeping and we'll end it there thank you so much for listening Catherine. um what are you going to do after the debates are done? Are, are you are you following anything else in politics right now? Are you going to be live tweeting anything else? Yeah, we're doing a major home renovation project, so that's kind of all I'm thinking about right now. Jigger, what do you got going on? What's what's the most exciting thing happening for you this week or July 4th weekend? Well, so I've got a bunch of family coming in July 4th weekend, but I'm uh, but we're going to the DR after that, so I'm going to try to make sure that I stay alive. <laughs> to the DR? Oh, the Dominican Republic? Yeah. Stay alive? What do you mean? There's been like 10 people from the U.S. have died there in the last four months. Oh, geez. I it's, didn't see that. It's, well, it's okay, terrifying. We're... Yeah, I'm going to not drink <laughs> from the minibar. 
what a what, let, let, let's end on a happier note. We're, you're you're going to be back with us. <laughs> <laughs> we promise it. You're not going anywhere. You're going to enjoy. Yeah, your I think I'll be fine. It's just uh, it's you know it's it's been covered in the news a lot, and so I think people are freaked out. But I'm I'm I think I'm going to have a great time. It's going to be a nice. It's a nice resort. I think we'll have a great time. Amazing. Well, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts. I am Stephen Lacey. This is the Energy Gang weekly conversations and debates on the energy transition. To our American listeners, have a great Independence Day, and we'll uh, catch you next week. 